Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going to have our first In Focus episode where we explore a more advanced wealth planning topic. Today, we'll discuss state tax audits preparing for the inevitable. Just by way of background, COVID has certainly changed the landscape with respect to tax issues, and state and local taxes are no exception. This is particularly true for folks who work remotely for their employer. The question is if the employee has tax nexus in a particular state. Nexus is the requisite contact between a taxpayer and a state before the state has jurisdiction to tax that individual. In this program, I invited Scott Brian Clark, who is the chair of the multi-state tax practice at law firm Day Pitney, to discuss the audit and litigation issues that may impact high-income professionals. For the last 30 years, Scott has been at the forefront of the, at the state and local tax controversy world. He's well-versed in the intricacies of state tax planning, audits, and tax controversy in most of the 50 states. He has handled a wide variety of tax audits and issues for both ultra-high net worth individuals, estates, family offices, and prominent entertainers and personalities, and significant U.S. and multinational companies, particularly those on a focus with the telecommunications, technology, digital products, retail, and media. Prior to joining Dave Pitney in 2021, Scott was a longtime tax partner with Denton's in New York City. In the late 1990s, during the height of the telecom and internet bubble, he was a partner and the co-leader of the PricewaterhouseCoopers National Multi-State Tax and Legal Services Communications Industry Tax Practice. Earlier, he served for nine years as the Associate Tax Counsel for the GTE Corporation, which is now Verizon, where he was the Chief Legal Advisor and Counsel on issues on executive compensation and benefits and also on all state tax audit, protests, and litigation matters throughout the country. Today, Scott will be speaking on the state tax audits preparing for the inevitable. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Scott. Jonathan, thank you very much and uh, appreciate that introduction and glad to be with you. Um, Jonathan and I were chatting before and we are reminded that today is tax day uh, April 18th, <laughs> um, and uh, so I hope uh, you all are in good shape out there or will be by this afternoon. Um, my practice, as Jonathan um, alluded to, deals mostly with state tax issues uh, of all sorts, and a good portion of my practice focuses on some very interesting people in the entertainment world, um, some very high net worth people. Uh, and quite a bit of family office issues. And so for purposes of our discussion today, I thought I would focus on a number of those issues that I deal with on a daily basis. And so we call this state audits preparing for the inevitable. And it's preparing today for those inevitable issues that I see consistently arise and are issues that taxpayers and family offices consistently have to deal with. 
By the way, um, as Jonathan alluded to, there is an outline. Uh, please feel free to review that at your convenience. I'm going to kind of talk through those very same issues, but am not going to specifically refer to it. On that outline, you'll also see my contacts. So if you have any questions or follow-up questions or curious about issues, please feel free to, to reach out through email or otherwise, and I'd be happy to respond. I thought, again, the issues we'd cover today are residency issues. And residency covers a, a, a couple of sins, so to speak. It covers the issue of domicile. And it also covers the issue of what's called statutory residency, and we'll get into those. Also, particularly in light of uh, COVID, which I still mention, but is clearly waning at this point, uh, we still are living uh, with the issues of remote work. And to that end, we have issues of taxation. Uh, New York has the, I'll call it the infamous convenience of the employer rule. Other states have followed that. And then as a result of remote work, there are thorny nexus issues, which are triggered for the companies that we all work for, nexus with respect to income taxes and, and sales taxes. Uh, with respect to audits themselves, uh, I've seen, and I think most of my colleagues have seen a clear uptick in terms of state audits and inquiries. And quite frankly, those issues today are much harder to deal with, mostly because states, in particular New York for one, have been losing and lost quite a number of personnel and they've lost quite a number of, of senior people. As a result, there's a whole lot of institutional knowledge that's left those departments. It's simply gone, gone out the door um, in terms of retirements and otherwise. And that's why it is typically much more difficult today to resolve some of those basic issues. It's, it's much more difficult to resolve issues of, of residency, uh, domicile, and also nexus. On top of that, we still are left with a state need for revenue. To give you some of the numbers, I just pulled these off the internet in the last day or so. Uh, California, for one, has still a building deficit, 22.5 billion today, as well as uh, states like New York State, New York City, have increasing projections on deficits, New York State about 6.5 billion increase over the next four years. And New York City is projected to have a deficit of about 14 billion by 2027. And although state administrators may not admit it, one has to think that those deficit numbers do in some way come into the fray when trying to resolve these issues at the state level. So let's talk about residency. Um, I'll call it uh, to start off the great shift to the low or no tax states, uh, the great shift to Florida, a no tax state. Similarly, we see that although less so perhaps to Texas and uh, perhaps Nevada. But in considering the shift to Florida, 
uh, a couple of points to keep in mind. The Florida population, by the way, I believe for the first time, now exceeds the New York population. Florida at about 22 million as of the end of 2022. New York at 20 million, uh, a same at the end of 2022. Yet it is quite interesting to note, or I find it interesting to note that the Florida budget, the state budget, is about half of what it is in New York. The Florida budget at 115 billion, New York state budget at 232. So again, while the population of Florida is slightly more than New York, their budget is about half. And unfortunately, um, my experience with clients is you note that with respect to uh, uh, the, the, the budget uh, applied to folks uh, who are of lesser means, who are, are of, uh, with disabilities. Now, uh, any change in residence, be it from New York to Florida or a Northeast state to Florida or Texas, one can, in my view, expect at least an inquiry and quite possibly an audit. Uh, I'm told by the most senior people at the New York State Tax Department that this level of audit has apparently slowed, but frankly, in my practice, I haven't seen it. Uh, clearly in 2021 and for the most of 2022, whenever one changed his or her status from resident to non-resident on a New York State return, one could expect at least uh, an inquiry. And again, if the dollars are significant, I would expect that today, uh, if and if not an inquiry, certainly an audit. The problem, of course, is that these audits are quite intrusive. Uh, uh, the audits today, similar as in recent prior years, can last at least 12 to 18 months uh, on the optimistic side, up to 24 months or more. And if you factor in the time for appeals, you're talking about a period of years typically to resolve complicated issues. And in the meantime, you've got to keep in mind that interest uh, keeps on ticking on these assessments. So they become today even much more difficult to deal with. To put the issue in perspective when talking about the issue of uh, residency, and we'll get into domicile and statutory residency in a minute, keep in mind overall that when you're talking about a resident, a resident of a state, New Jersey, California, New York, wherever, a resident is taxed on all her income, no matter where it is earned. Whereas if you are a non-resident, the tax is only on the state source income. That is on the uh, in-state wages earned, uh, rental from state property uh, or gains from state property. Again, non-resident tax only on state source income. With that in mind, let's talk first about domicile. And what does domicile mean? Domicile, of course, is a question of, of intent. Uh, where does one intend to live? The case law talks about it in terms of 
where is one's heart? Uh, it's a question of intent, right? And I always say people come to me and they get an inquiry from the state on residency and, and they ask me how to handle it. But the first question they really need to think about and really need to resolve is totally aside from the tax issue. Uh, where do they intend to live? Where do they want to live? Uh, where do they intend to return? I always say tax should never sway the dog or wag the dog. Uh, the first question is, where do they want to live? And once you know that, you can best approach the issue. Quite frankly, for those individuals, and I'm using New York, but it could be any state, I deal with these issues all over the country, but I'm in New York today. So uh, thinking about New York, um, if one as typical wants to keep the condo in New York and maintain it because they've lived there with family for many years, maybe that in fact is their domicile. And, and so again, the first step is where does one intend to live? Where does one intend to return? Um, many states have uh, very uh, uh, difficult and thorny issues when, when thinking about domicile. Again, we'll talk about more about New York and the Northeast states, but just to mention a couple of others, uh, California, you're deemed to be a domiciliary if you have a physical presence for other than a temporary or transitory period. In Georgia, every person is a resident who resides within the state for more or less a regular, uh, on more or less a regular or permanent basis. When we talk about domicile in the Northeast states, typically Maine to about uh, Delaware, we look toward what's called the NSTOA protocol. Uh, NSTOA is the Northeast States Tax Officials Organization. And that is an organization, again, of all the uh, 12 or I guess 13 states in the Northeast, essentially Maine to Delaware. About 25 years ago, I was privileged to be involved. Those Northeast states got together at the NSTOA meeting and put together a protocol it's essentially uh, a protocol of the five basic factors which any Northeast state will look at in order to uh, determine where one's domicile is. And those factors are the ones that we typically talk about. There, it's the home, time, items near and dear, where the active business, and to a little bit of a lesser degree where the family is. So in looking at those factors, again, home, we look at where the homes are, be it in New York, New Jersey, Florida, wherever they are. We look at the cost, we look at the opulence, we look at the size, and we compare them relatively. Those homes in New York or New Jersey or Connecticut versus those homes in the remote state, Florida, Texas, Nevada, wherever. We look at the amount of time spent. And what we want to see is, of course, we want to see the overriding amount of time in that state 
where you'd like to be a resident. So if you're claiming a residency in Florida, we wanna see the overabundance of your time, the day count in Florida. Third, we look at where items near and dear are located uh, under the thought that the items that are near and dear to you, whether they're classic cars, books, artwork, uh, coins, jewelry, that you keep them close to you at your own residence, your own domicile. Uh, fourth, we look at where your active business is. Um, where is the center of gravity with respect to the business you do? And fifth, and really only fifth, we look at the family. And family is much more important when you have a long, young family. That is, you have uh, young kids that go to school, but much less important if you're older. Finally, uh, we look at something called other. And it's interesting to note that other is that whole plethora of other contacts that folks typically talk about, right? Where your cars are registered, where, where you vote, where your clubs are, where your doctors are, where your lawyers are. Um, uh, it is this category of other that quite frankly, in the Nistoa protocol are not, are not one of the five factors. Nonetheless, we still see today that many of the tax departments and many of the cases, we see this particularly in Connecticut, focus or still focus on these other factors. I would submit to you though, however, that those other factors are much less important than the five main factors. And they're much less important because they're much more susceptible to manipulation, right? Uh, to a fair degree, I can manipulate where my doctors are, my lawyers are, uh, where my club memberships are. Uh, perhaps even I can manipulate where my uh, friends are. Um, so in my view, and I think still true today, certainly true under the Nestoa protocol, the other factors are much less important. In considering those factors, there are th maybe two or three other concepts that we need to layer in that are really important. In order to determine no domicile, particularly a change of domicile, the burden on us, the taxpayer, is extremely high. In fact, it is the highest burden. It is a burden of clear and convincing evidence. So we must show a change of domicile uh, again, I'll, I'll use New York, forgive me, it could be anywhere, uh, but New York to Florida, California to Florida, California to Texas. We must show that change of domicile by a clear and convincing evidence standard. Further, we need to show, particularly in states you see this like uh, Georgia and other states, but true in just about all states, we need to show not only that you've moved, not only that it's clear and convincing based on the evidence that you've moved, but you need to show abandonment of the state. Uh, folks call that uh, leaving. We need to show we left, we abandoned, we left and we landed, right? We left New York and we clearly landed in Florida. 
And you need to show that based on the facts. And furthermore, in developing this story that we call change in domicile, we, we need to do just that. We need to develop a story, right? We, we need to have a reason for the change in domicile. One logical reason can be retirement, right? Retirement can be a very logical reason to move down to Florida. Um, change in business, change in firm, change in company uh, can be a very logical reason to move from one state to another. But in my view, it's really important to tell a story as to what the basis is for this change. One other point, there are a couple of safe harbors. I'll note the one important safe harbor is the 30-day safe harbor that many of the Nestoa states and many other states adopt. It simply means that, for example, in New York, if you, have, if you give up the home in New York, you have no home in New York, but you have a home in Florida, and you're in New York for less than 30 days, you will come within that safe harbor. And by that, you will not be deemed a domiciliary of the state. And so it's important to keep that safe harbor in mind. When talking about domicile, I've been talking about it here uh, for purposes of the income tax. But keep in mind that it's the very same test um, for estate taxes. And for those of you who deal in the estate tax world, be included, uh, we see that issue come up quite a bit today, where states uh, are uh, making determinations, Connecticut, New York, other states, that individuals are uh, domiciled in the state for purposes of the estate tax. And the consequences there can be much more significant when you're talking about a, a particularly large estate. Now, thus far, we've been talking about the issue of domicile, right? But when dealing with residence, residence includes domicile, but it also includes this concept called statutory residency, which is a mere creature of the statute and hence statutory residence. And there are two pieces to whether one is a statutory resident. One is a statutory resident if for one, she maintains a permanent place of abode for substantially all of the taxable year in the state and, and she's in the state for more than 183 days. So essentially one maintains a home in the state for substantially all of the year, not all of the year, but just substantially all of the year. Plus one is in the state, the day count for more than 183 days. Now, when considering the day count, remember that a day doesn't have to be a full day, a part day counts as a day. And with respect to whether you maintain a home for substantially all of the year, uh, all of the year simply maintains that you may you uh, have that home in the state for 10 months or more. I'll talk about one interesting case that came down the pike at uh, later in 2022, and that's the Obus case. And the Obus case deals with um, what does it mean to have a home in the state, right? What goes into having a home? Essentially, um, is is if you have a home, 
uh, how do you determine whether you view it as a home? Uh, here, essentially, the individual had a vacation home. Uh, Nelson Obis had a vacation home located in upstate, I think it was near Albany. It was four hours from the city. He merely used it two or three weeks a year. He had a tenant occupying part of the home and he kept no belongings there. So essentially, Mr. Obis would go up, I think he went skiing uh, for two or three weeks a year. He'd bring his belongings with him. He kept nothing there. Uh, and that was the extent to his use of the home. New York State said they viewed that as a home because objectively it was a home. It was a five bedroom, uh, three bath home in upstate New York. It wasn't a summer cottage. It could be used all year round. It had heat, it had air conditioning. Obus on the other hand asserted that it was not a home, that subjectively it was for vacations. Uh, because it was four hours away from New York City where he worked on a daily basis, he did not view it as his own. Uh, and somewhat surprisingly, the appellate division uh, of the New York courts uh, agreed with him. And so today we have a new standard. And that standard is that for purposes of the statutory residence test, you determine whether you have a home based not on the objective criteria, but based on your subjective intent. Uh, that is, how do you view that home? Um, one more issue in the next few minutes that I thought I'd just raise is the, uh, a separate issue, getting away from residency. And that's this quirky convenience of the employer rule in New York. Many of you know, many of you may have to deal with uh, this issue uh, called convenience of the employer that says essentially, if you have an individual, an employee who is uh, an employee of a New York office, then all the wages that he or she has will be taxable uh, in New York unless those wages are earned outside New York as a result of necessity to the employer. In other words, the employer necessitates, requires you to be out of state. That standard is seldom reached, particularly in times of COVID and currently, because people are working remotely, clearly not because the employer requires it, requires it, but because they would like to do so. And as a result, we see a number of cases that have gone and are going up the pike with respect to convenience of the employer. Most notably currently, we see Ed Zielinski's case. Ed is a professor at uh, Cardozo Law School in New York City. Uh, he is currently litigating um, his, his case uh, in New York. And so, uh, we'll see what comes out about that. But essentially he raises uh, the issue that uh, the standard should not apply to him because uh, particularly in 2019 and 2020, he was required to work out of state in his home in Connecticut and therefore should not come within the convenience of the employer rule in New York. And therefore New York 
should not get all his wages for 2019 and 2020. And as I say, as that case goes up, it'll probably be in litigation unless they can work out some settlement. Uh, it will be in litigation for, uh, I'm sure, a, a, a good amount of time, and we'll see how that comes out. Um, but with that in mind, uh, there are a number of other uh, issues to go through. I think I'll stop there. I see our time is about up. Uh, Jonathan, I'll circle back to you, and I would simply say that if folks have uh, questions or any follow-up, uh, if it's okay, please feel free to reach out. Jonathan, with that, I'll transfer back to you. Thank you so much, Scott, for that succinct overview of such an important topic. I felt that was extremely informative. The main takeaway for me is that if you do work remotely for a company in another state or spend time in multiple states, whether on vacation or business, it's important to make sure that you have your planning in order so if you get audited for an additional tax, you'll be properly prepared. Naturally, this is a nuanced area, and hiring a specialist like Scott to ensure you have your I's dotted and T's crossed is highly advisable. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to me directly via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.